This is a Triple J podcast. Hey there, Tim Shepard in for Dave Marchese on the Hack Podcast. I'm sure you've all seen one of your mates living overseas and been a bit jealous. A summer in London, drinking in the sun, a working holiday skiing in Canada or New Zealand. It always looks like so much fun, right? But sometimes it's not. Some people who've gone overseas say they've spent months struggling to get enough work and there's a shortage of accommodation. How's your experience living overseas been? Was it awesome or was it a letdown? Also on the show, we're going to get an update on a big climate summit taking place in the US, but there's some other big news to talk about first. Hack. The inquiry that we're announcing today will look at as well the more than 20 inquiries that have already happened. Whether that be the lockdowns, border closures, mandates and the like were unilaterally the domain of state and territory governments. On Triple J. The COVID pandemic was a hectic time for a lot of us. You might have been stuck overseas or in another state because of border restrictions. Maybe you're one of the hundreds of thousands of people who lost work or a loved one. Lockdowns, vaccine rollouts, hotel quarantine. Years later, a lot of us are still wondering if we should have done anything different. Well, today, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has announced there'll be an inquiry into the country's pandemic response. So how's it all going to work, though? Hack reporter Chantelle Alcuri is here with all the details. Chantelle, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Look, what's this inquiry all about? Yeah, so this is something the Prime Minister promised back when he was in opposition. They basically want to look into how state, territory and federal governments responded to the pandemic. So this is all about looking at how we did and how we can be better prepared in the future. Because we know that a bunch of scientists and health experts are telling us that, unfortunately, this is probably not going to be our last pandemic. So the aim they're saying is to do a better job of handling it next time. We did hear from Prime Minister Anthony Albanese this morning. Here's what he had to say. Australians will well recall, will never forget uh, what the country went through in 2020 and 2021 in particular. It was a time where Australians joined together. They made sacrifices to help each other. Uh, They sacrificed some of the normal activity uh, that would go on and it was a very disruptive period in our lives but we got through it and we got through it in a way that uh, was Uh, positive in most respects, but we need to examine what went right, uh, what could be done better with a focus on the future. Because the health experts and the science tells us that this pandemic uh, may well be, indeed is not likely to be the last one that occurs. So that's why better preparedness is very important. So how will it all work then? Yeah, so it's going to be done independently, but the panel will consult widely with a bunch of different stakeholders. They're also going to invite submissions from members of the public, but they've listed a a couple of main things they're going to be looking at. So COVID vaccinations and treatments, PPE, public health messaging, um, some of those broader health supports like mental health and suicide prevention support. So at the time, we know the demand for those services was huge. So they'll be looking at that. Um, Financial support for individuals, support for industry and business. A lot of us had family and friends that were stuck overseas, so looking at assistance for Australians overseas and that assisted return back home. And also the governance side of things. 
So we heard from Nancy Baxter, who's an epidemiologist. Her name's a bit familiar because we heard from her a lot during the pandemic. She says that a lot of this is super important to look at so that we understand how to best respond to future pandemics. Here's what she had to say. I think it's important that we take the time now to reflect on our responses, what worked well, what could have been done better? What are the opportunities uh, if that happens again? Because sadly, um, we are likely to face another pandemic in our lifetime. Uh, I know people don't want to hear that, but it, it is it is true. And so understanding what we did, why we did it, and how it affected uh, our outcomes, uh, it, it's important to do. So, so I welcome the chance for the government to be able to do a deep dive. Uh, I think it is important in terms of, um, you know, not kind of pointing fingers and laying blame. I, I, in terms terms of the credibility of the outcome of this, really important for it to be done in a constructive way. Now, there are a couple of things that aren't actually in the scope for this inquiry, things like programs and activities that helped foreign countries. But a big one is actions taken unilaterally by state and territory governments. Now, this could mean things like state border closures and state lockdowns. And as someone who was, you know, in an LGA of concern in Western Sydney, I think there were a lot of questions around some of the decisions that were made at that time. It's very possible that that's something that won't be in this inquiry. Right. So it may miss out on some of those bigger decisions that other people are interested in. Do we know who's going to be leading it? Yeah, so there are three panel members. It's Robin Crux, who's a public admin expert. She's a former head of departments like Health in New South Wales and Federal Department. So she'll be looking at that side of things. There's also Professor Catherine Bennett. She's an epidemiologist who will act as the health expert in all of this, I guess. And Dr Angela Jackson, who's a health economist. We know that um, the Prime Minister says we need to look at how we can have a more resilient economy when things like this happen. So she'll be kind of looking at that side of things. And Chantel, there was talk that this could have been a royal commission. Do we know why they've chosen this type of inquiry and not a royal commission? Yeah, so this won't have the same powers as a royal commission. They can still call witnesses and look at, you know, the response of federal, state and territory governments, but states can't be compelled to give evidence. The Prime Minister says he imagines everyone wants to participate, so heaps of questions were put to the PM about this. Why is this not a Royal Commission? He's defended it. We know the opposition is saying that it should have been one so that they could have probed some of the decisions made by state and territory governments, things like those lockdowns. Um, They're calling this a complete waste of time. There was some comments from Peter Dutton a little earlier, um, you know, comments about protecting people like Dan Andrews and Anastasia Palaszczuk. It is important to note, though, that at that time there were Liberal um, state premiers as well, so it would have to look into decisions like those. So that, that doesn't really count. But in terms of those concerns, here's what he had to say a little earlier today. It should be a Royal Commission. Uh, there's no question about that. But uh, let, let, let's be honest what's happened here. Uh, the letters patent weren't supported by Daniel Andrews and Anastasia Palaszczuk, and now you've got this concocted story uh, from the desperate Prime Minister, uh, who's telling you that uh, an inquiry should only go up to the period that uh, he was elected. As Annie rightly points out, there have been significant deaths since the government has been elected uh, under Mr Albanese in aged care facilities. Uh, there's been a drop-off in the number of uh, immunisations that have taken place. So it's political at every turn. Uh, it's a witch hunt against the Prime Minister's predecessor, with whom he's obsessed, uh, but it allows Uh, people who are front and centre of the decision-making to ride scot-free. 
All right, it sounds like it could get a little political, but do we know when we're going to actually get some answers? Yeah, so the government has asked the inquiry to report back within a year, so that should be around the 30th of September in 2024. Then the government's going to get those findings and some of those recommendations, and we might see a response to all of that. All right, Chantelle, thanks for coming on and bringing us up to speed. Thank you. That was Chantelle Alcuri, our hack reporter in Canberra. Lots of you weighing in about this one on the text line. Max says, honestly, I'd say the response was actually decent to good, considering my low expectations from the Liberal Party. Ethan says, I'd want to see them explore the mental health impacts. I struggle every day from the effects of lockdown. And someone else, when you look at it from the context of evidence-based public health, so much more could have been done. Might have cost a significant amount, but long term it would have saved countless lives and had a positive economic contribution. In comparison to other countries, though, the response here was good. All right, time to move on. Hack. We must make up time lost to foot dragging, arm twisting, and the, the naked greed of entrenched interests raking in billions from fossil fuels. On Triple J. Every year, there's a big event in New York City where a lot of important people from all around the world get together to chat about important topics. It's called the United Nations General Assembly. And this is the biggest meetup in the last few years, with representatives from more than 190 nations showing up. They've been discussing a bunch of topics, the war in Ukraine, the cost of living. This year, a whole bunch of world leaders also used the catch-up from the General Assembly, though, to hold a separate meeting on an issue we know you care a lot about, climate change. April McLennan is here to give us a quick recap of how the Climate Ambition Summit went down. Humanity has opened the gates of hell. Horrendous hit is having horrendous effects. It was a bleak warning from the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres at the opening of the Climate Ambition Summit that's being held on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York. Distraught farmers watching crops carried away by floods sweltering temperatures, spawning disease, and thousands fleeing in fear as historic fires rage. The focus of the summit was on climate solutions and how it can help to stop global heating. But despite the grim outlook, some of the world's biggest polluters actually flaked on the summit, including leaders from China, the US, India, Russia, France, and the UK. And another big polluter was called out for not doing enough to curb emissions. In case you're wondering who that was, yeah, it was us, Australia. Climate scientists and advocates are using the UN meetings to pressure Australia to stop dozens of gas and coal projects. And the Australian Institute think tank actually published a full page ad in the New York Times, calling on Australia to stop over 100 new fossil fuel projects that are in the pipeline. The ad includes an open letter signed by more than 200 scientists and experts. Our Foreign Minister Penny Wong even got pressed by a CNN reporter outside the assembly. Can you honestly say that your record on climate is in the right direction? Look, Australia has been a very fossil fuel intensive economy. I mean, that is a reality. And so part of what we are having to do uh, is to transition, uh, you know, a very uh, carbon intensive economy to a clean energy economy. And that is a big task. Some Pacific Islands have been calling on countries like Australia to do more. They want to see a faster phase out of fossil fuels and the ramping up of renewable energy. So what I say to the Pacific, and I have visited every member of the Pacific Islands Forum, is I say, look, 
we recognise our history and the nature of our economy, what I can say to you is we are genuinely motivated to change that uh, and that's what we're working on. Minister Wong said by 2030, more than 80% of our energy will come from renewables. But we're not the only country raising a few eyebrows with our action on climate change. This week, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak actually weakened some of Britain's plans to tackle climate change, delaying a phase out of petrol cars by five years and easing the transition away from gas heating in homes. So I'm very confident that what we're doing is right, because not only do we have these world-leading targets, we're actually just doing it in a better way that will bring the country along with us and save families thousands of pounds. Um, and there's nothing watering down about that. Yet Sunak reckons the UK is still on track to meet its climate targets, including a promise to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. But Antonio Guterres warns that if nothing changes, then we're heading towards a 2.8 degree temperature rise, which he described as a dangerous and unstable world. But the future is not fixed. It is for leaders like you to write it. We can still limit the rise in global temperature to 1.5 degrees. We can still build a world of clean air, green jobs, and affordable clean power for all. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan reporting there. And look, I want to get into this a little bit more with someone who's actually in New York this week for the summit. Polly Hemming is Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. She's also part of the group that took out a massive ad in the New York Times newspaper calling on the Australian government to rely less on fossil fuels. Hacks Shalila Medora spoke to Polly and asked her what she's hoping to achieve. Well, it was an open letter signed by um, 220 scientists, climate scientists and other independent experts. Um, and, I mean, what it was hoping to achieve was just to point out the hypocrisy of the Australian government, who we know would be presenting at the United Nations Climate Ambition Summit in New York and in the meantime, 10,000 miles away back in Australia is still approving new gas and coal projects, contributing directly to the climate crisis with its fossil fuel exports and directly contradicting everything that it would be saying on the world stage. So it wasn't necessarily coming from the Australia Institute. We published the open letter, but it was independent experts supporting a call for Australia to stop approving and stop subsidising fossil fuels. Do you think the federal government's going to take notice? Well, whether the federal government in Australia is going to take notice, I'm not sure. Uh, Minister Wong was asked about Australia's fossil fuel expansion by CNN. What's more important is that the rest of the world is taking notice. And at the UN Climate Ambition Summit, Australia was denied a speaking spot in the first session because that was a session specifically put aside for uh, what the the United Nations calls first movers and leaders. Australia's absence was noted there, so clearly the world is already taking notice about Australia's inaction on climate. You've sort of preempted my next question, which was how has this been received in New York? Well, yeah, I think given that Australia wasn't giving us given a speaking spot at the UN Climate Ambition Summit, that says a lot. Over the last 12 months, there was initially a lot of enthusiasm internationally uh, after Australia's green slide election on Australia's, you know, bold plans for climate. We're going to be a renewable energy superpower. We 
increased our climate target, admittedly not in line with the science of what's required to keep global warming within 1.5 degrees. But I think everyone is now seeing behind the rhetoric. The Australian government's still approving coal mines into the middle of this century. It's still subsidising fossil fuels. It's clearly just the same old Australia, but with a bit of a rebrand. So I think it's very telling that it wasn't given the speaking spot at the summit. Um, it, it did make another amount, announcement later in the day, but was silent on fossil fuels, silent on broader decarbonisation and increasing ambition. Our neighbours in the Pacific have said that Australia is not pulling its weight when it comes to climate action. Does this criticism make the government actually take notice when you have your neighbours saying these things about you? Well, that's really interesting. And Penny Wong, our foreign minister, who was at the UN Ambition Summit, uh, was sitting next to Minister Seve Pinyu, the the finance minister of Tuvalu, so who gave quite a robust speech about fossil fuels and the threat of climate change to the Pacific. So if she hasn't heard it before now, she certainly heard it today. But that said, straight after the 2022 election, Minister Wong addressed the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat and said, we will stand shoulder to shoulder with our Pacific family in response to the climate crisis. That language changed today to become, we will stand shoulder to shoulder with the Pacific to, it was something like, increase their resilience in response to climate change. And while it doesn't seem like there's a lot of difference there, what that means is that Australia is now saying, we're not going to do anything to stop the cause of the climate crisis. Australia is the world's third largest fossil fuel exporter. We are not going to do anything to stop the thing that is putting Pacific livelihoods at risk, but we are going to help you adapt to the climate crisis that we are causing. And Minister Wong then went on to announce an adaptation partnership with with Tuvalu. So if you read through all the media releases over the last year, certainly Minister Bowen, Minister Wong, Minister Pat Conroy have all acknowledged the plight of Pacific nations. It's just any response is related to what Australia is doing domestically. You know, we're we're rolling out more renewables. We're decarbonising our own economy. Thank you very much. We're just not going to stop digging up and exporting the millions and millions, billions, in fact, of tonnes of CO2 that is driving the global warming that is increasing sea level um, that is putting your food security at risk, that is the the very existential threat to, to your entire livelihoods. Well, on the flip side here, two of the world's biggest contributors to climate change, China and the US, have skipped the meeting altogether. Isn't it better that Australia attends and kind of cops this criticism nearly than just skipping out on it? Uh, I don't know. Australia is very, very, very good at middle-level diplomacy, and I think this is why it's gotten away with being a petrostate for so long without anyone really noticing because it does front up to meetings like this. It says all the right things. It does say things, perform sleight-of-hand tricks to make everyone look away from the fact that it is still subsidising and approving and opening up new gas basins, new coal mines. Everyone thinks that because Australia is showing up and saying all the right things that they must be meeting that rhetoric with action. So had Australia not turned up, you know, there'd be no difference in its action, but 
we wouldn't be hearing a lot of the spin and greenwash that we ended up hearing today at the summit. The UK's rolled back some of its green targets, including delaying the phasing out of petrol cars. Are we seeing more countries around the world stepping away from their climate targets? Uh, It's a good question. And the IPCC shows globally that current policies are not on track to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. So no country has a suite of policies that would do what is required. No country is meeting the, the urgency that is required and a lot of false solutions are getting more attention than ever, like carbon capture and storage, carbon offsets, tricky accounting. There is some progress, but yeah, no country is fully on track for what is required. That said, you know, the US and the UK uh, have fairly ambitious power sector decarbonisation targets. Um, The UK still has a good coal phase out. So, you know, if you look at individual policies of each country, most countries are doing some good, I would say, with the exception of Australia. It's just in other areas, yeah, that, that, you know, there's, there's no explicit fossil fuel phase out. There's still huge amounts of public money going into uh, fossil fuel subsidies. So I don't know if it's a case of, you know, obviously, yes, the UK did has rolled back some of what it's doing. Um, I'm not sure if it's a case of, of pulling back, but it certainly is a case of not doing enough. Just finally, Polly, Australia wants to host a UN climate conference alongside our Pacific neighbours in 2026. What do you think our chances are of that? Uh, I... I mean, to be honest, the the main competition is Turkey. There's a lot of champions for Australian hosting a UN climate conference in 2026. Australia has been lobbying incredibly hard over the last 12 months to try and uh, recruit the support of other countries to support its bid. I think it's probably likely that Australia will end up hosting a COP, but as as another organisation said... <laughs> this could be Australia's Olympic moment on climate action. And in fact, I think that's probably true because if you look at the history of the Olympics, so many countries made really ambitious promises and were subsequently awarded hosting rights for the Olympics. And then we saw in the case of China and Russia, uh, a number of other countries, that it was a huge exercise in greenwashing or or sports washing, washing, you know, appalling human rights record. So chances are, I think are probably high. I don't think hosting a COP is an inherently good or bad thing. I think the fact that it brings Australia under international scrutiny and the, and Australia has made itself vulnerable by needing the support of other countries, then there's a chance that other countries can sort of leverage that vulnerability and demand that Australia does more. Polly Hemming, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks so much. That was Polly Hemming, who's the Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute. She was chatting with Shalila Medora from New York, where a Climate Ambition Summit is being held on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly. Hack! After three months, 200 job applications, about 20 interviews, I managed to get something, but it was really hard. And the worst bit was there was nothing I could do. On Triple Jack... If you've ever thought about heading overseas for a working holiday, then I reckon you might want to listen to this one. Heaps of young Australians have been jumping on a plane and heading abroad lately, chasing new experiences, 
maybe a bit of fun after years of disruption through the pandemic. And look, plenty of people are living the dream. But for some people who've travelled recently, it's not all it's cracked up to be. In some of the more popular places like London and Canada, it can actually be really hard to find a safe place to live and a job that can pay the bills. Our reporter Kira Proust has this story. There were no locks on the house, no locks on the bedroom, so people would be barging in and out all the time. People would barge into my bedroom, which was terrifying. Kelly Fraser's 24 and just spent a year and a half working in Canada's famous Rocky Mountains, living in popular tourist town Banff. She was keen to do an overseas working holiday after finishing her uni degree in Wollongong. She scored staff accommodation for the first year, but when she had to find somewhere else to live, she really struggled. One of my good friends over there offered his lounge for a few days till I could figure something out. And then after that, I got accepted into the emergency, like women's shelter, I guess you call it. Uh, and that was that was pretty dodgy. That she was- spent a month in the emergency women's shelter. And when she eventually found a room in town, it was pretty full on. I probably should have just stayed in the women's shelter because that house was way worse than anywhere else I'd lived. My neighbours broke into the house a few times looking for drugs and, like, ransacked the place. Banff is a super popular place for Aussies to go for work. It's extremely busy in the ski season but attracts tourists all year round. While visitors have plenty of options to choose from, it's a lot harder for workers who aren't put up in staff accommodation. We know we're about 700 units short of housing. So it it definitely impacts us. We sit with a very, very low vacancy rate, which sits below 0%. Sharon Oakley works as a housing manager at Banff's local council. The town's in a unique position because it's in a national park. Everyone living in Banff has to work in the park. There's also not much land available to build on. What we're seeing now is that it probably needs to densify a bit so that we can accommodate those 700 units. We are also restricted as a, we have a, a height cap So we can't build a 20-storey development here. But Kelly reckons there's a lot of tourist accommodation already in town that could be used to give workers better and safer housing options. I don't see why they can't just rent out some of that and be like, yeah, this is going to be put aside so that our staff don't have homes. It's not an issue just being felt in Banff, though. Towns right across Canada and in other tourist hotspots around the world struggle with the same challenges. My experience in dealing with Whistler and Tofino and Jasper is that we all experience the same type of issues. And I think anywhere that has an influx of young service staff that shifts throughout the year. Finding a house isn't the only hurdle when heading overseas. Getting a job can be just as hard. I spoke to dozens of young Aussies living in London who have struggled to either find work or a safe place to live. Catherine McClure is one of them. I struggled to find anything. She had to fork out thousands of dollars up front to secure a rental with her partner in London's competitive housing market. And she spent three long months applying for jobs before landing something. I spent all day on the phone to recruiters, I spent all day applying for jobs, and I just kept getting knocked back. It was a massive knock to my confidence. She reckons most Aussies aren't aware of how hard it's going to be before they head to places like the UK. Everyone told me that they love Australians here and you'll get a job so easy, and that just wasn't the case. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says the government expects all Australians to look after themselves overseas. But a spokesperson says... In exceptional circumstances, traveller emergency loans are available to those experiencing financial hardship. 
these loans are generally only extended to Australians who are short-term travellers overseas, are in financial difficulty through no fault of their own, and cannot seek financial support through their insurer, family or friends. Kelly and Catherine say their experiences haven't put them off working overseas, but they have a few tips for people who are about to jet off. You need to find a job that has staff come. That's the main thing before you go there or have somewhere lined up. Like you think it's going to be easier to find somewhere when you get there and it's just not. My other thing would be save up as much money as you can. It's completely unaffordable and people need to know that before they get here. Like rent is really expensive, but you know, the experience is worth it. Hack on Triple J. A big thank you to Kira Proust for that story. That's it for the Hack Podcast today. Dave Marchese is away tomorrow, but Dee Salmon will be in for the shake-up. I'll catch you later. Hack on Triple Jack.